Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton, joined as always by my friend, well, debatable friend, colleague, <laughs> co-worker, peer, Mr. Mark Daly. I, as everybody knows, am currently based out of Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. Mr. Daly is back in Vancouver. We are 12 hours apart. So as we record this, it's 9 p.m. Pacific time on Thursday evening for you, but 9 a.m. Friday morning for me here in the Middle East. And boy, have we got a great show lined up for you today, principally driven, no pun intended, by the fact that we had a... I don't want to say a surprisingly great Grand Prix weekend because maybe we didn't know what to expect, but I thought this weekend was an absolute blast from qualifying to the race to the outcome. I should be careful because I don't want to come across as too biased, but (laughs) the fact that this championship continues to go down to the wire. And last night, my wife and I, after the Grand Prix, we're sitting here and we're playing through all the different scenarios in our head. Like what has to happen for this to go down to the final race in Abu Dhabi in a couple of weeks? What would have to happen for that not to happen? And we're just playing through all these scenarios and we're doing the math and Oh, my friend, all I can say is I'm excited. And selfishly, as everybody knows, I have some personal motivation in this happening. But to share (laughs) a little bit of stat too, uh, my wife and I, as everybody knows, we were at the Yoss finale in 2016 when Nico Rosberg defeated Lewis Hamilton to take his chip. Since then, Lewis won in 17, 18, 19, and 20. We had our son late 2017, right before Lewis won his chip. So interestingly, since our son's been born and since we were last at Yoss, Lewis has won every possible championship. So we are going back to Yoss for the season finale. I don't know what this means and I don't know what to make of this, but my friend, <laughs> how the heck are you? I'm not too bad. And I was just thinking as you were talking there that, yeah, I mean, yeah, you are 12 hours apart. You're literally on the other side of the globe and it's it's pretty cool what uh, technology could do. I mean, you're sitting there, it's hot, it's sunny. Well, today I was outside with a toque on with like my, my warm clothes while I was putting up the Christmas decorations. You know, it's all completely uh, different but it's all good it's all good and like yourself I really enjoyed watching the the, the race the, this weekend first of all before we talk about what happened during the, the the race and the qualifying and everything like that I just wanted to get your take now that we saw Lucille in action w- what was your thoughts on the track did you like it not like it did, it did it leave room to be improved I know it's just a sort of a temporary until we go back there in 23 to a proper uh, facility and all that but Curious to get your take. I loved it. Uh, honestly, so I'm very familiar with this track. I've been watching yeah. MotoGP there for many, many years. I never envisioned a day that we would see Formula One. I don't want to say that the track was built on a budget, but relative to Bahrain and Jeddah and Yas, it definitely was. It was designed as a MotoGP circuit first and foremost. And I always had trouble imagining what a Formula One race would look like there. But now having had a weekend at this track, and I get it, there were some issues with punctures and it's an incredibly high load track because 
because it's a mix of high and medium speed corners. And I don't think we could have predicted what the tire degradation would have looked like. But you know what, if this track saw some significant upgrades, and and I talk about taking a lot of those gravel traps that are really, really necessary for slowing down those riders and their bikes if they fall, Mm -hmm. um, paving them. Um, I think if you reprofiled some of the curbs, if you expanded on the garages and installed some more permanent grandstands, this could be a really great Formula One track permanently. But you just made a great point, which I was really hoping to hit on in this podcast, which is when we go back in 2023, so we're not going back next year because Qatar wants to be fully focused on the World Cup, which kicks off in exactly a year. That's right. When we go back in 2023, the expectation is that we're going to see a hybrid type track downtown on the Cornish, right on the waterfront. And I think the thinking there too is if I'm Qatar and I'm going to spend all this money to bring Formula One to my country, hosting a race on a track 40 minutes out of downtown, which isn't necessarily surrounded by anything appealing from a visual perspective, Mm. probably isn't a great look. And if I'm going to be using this event to showcase and profile my country, I probably want it in a, a more visually stimulating location. So I thought it was great. I thought it was a lot of fun. I love the high speed and the medium speed corners, but I would love to know your thoughts as well, because you and I haven't had a great deal of opportunity to connect over the last couple of days. Well, that, that that's the thing. Since we did the show on Sunday night, here we go fast forward to the beginning of the week <laughs> we, and, and just the time difference in between. We haven't really been talking as much as usual, but uh, yeah, you know, it, I, I liked it. I thought it was interesting too. Like I, I thought that it really kind of showcased itself well, but you could kind of tell that maybe Formula One wasn't the primary uh, user in mind when this course was uh, designed. But be that as it may, Having said that, if they're going to race at Monaco, which isn't really designed for anybody except for maybe scooters, oh, and, great point. then I mean, what is like the the ideal like track? But I mean, it had sort of a similar kind of vibe to maybe Mugello and maybe uh, Portimao. Some of these, maybe not in in pre-COVID times, maybe not your first choice Formula One circuits, but I still think that the, that they've been very very good i think we've seen some good racing there and what the one thing i thought i, I really liked about to lasalle was it felt like that it had a real nice flow to the to, to, to the lap i thought that uh, what was it something like 65 or 75 percent of the lap was at full throttle and i thought there was a nice uh, mix of corners and some straight uh, sections which you know probably lends itself better to um, say uh, uh, motorbikes but still i think it was very well adapted to to formula one and props to the organizers too for stepping in literally at the 11th hour to get this uh, this race up and running. So we we didn't get twenty three like we were hoping for, but we got twenty two, or at least we we think we will. <laughs> we'll talk about this in a month. So I mean, uh, and maybe this uh, plays really nicely into the uh, the, the tired uh, discussion which we'll have. But I mean, to put this race and get it up and running in literally a matter of weeks, I think is uh, great. And then to get a ten year race deal on top of it is fantastic. Absolutely, I think that comp you just made as well with Mugello is pro and I hadn't thought about that until that moment. That is probably the perfect comp and Mugello has some elevation and, and obviously Lucille yeah. doesn't, it, yeah. it's basically carved out of the desert, but that is a very good comp in terms of the fact that it's a compact track with some high speed corners. And like you, I think one of the things that was so, so enthralling was just how much of that track distance they are wide open on that throttle, but 
it looked good. It, it played well. And, and I think when we talk about upgrades and maybe it's going to be a moot point, although maybe we do go back in 2023 because I think asking Qatar to build a Grand Prix circuit downtown during the World Cup is asking a lot of that country. So maybe we will see this track again in 2023. And that's just me speculating. But if we do, maybe you pave over some of those gravel traps because obviously when Bottas went off with his puncture and he's throwing that trap, that gravel back on the track is not necessarily a, a good look. But I think as a stand-in that was only announced a couple of months ago on a track that only two of the current crop of drivers have ever driven on. Mm -hmm. I think this was I think this was outstanding. And you make another good point about Monaco. And you and I both know Monaco is not going anywhere. It's very important from a branding perspective for Formula One. But oh, I totally. think maybe we've tolerated some really bad tracks historically. And through the pandemic, which has obviously been horrible for the global society, but we've seen some really great tracks, whether it was Portimao, whether it was Mugello, whether it was now Lucille, we've had the opportunity to see some really great tracks. Yeah, totally. It's one of these uh, funny situations. I mean, if you can find a silver lining in the COVID cloud, I mean, I, I think that all of us as fans at some point would be, wouldn't it be cool if we saw a Formula One race fill in the blank, right? And Exactly, and, exactly. And, and just, you know, so like I say, this is one of the, the silver linings to the pandemic cloud is that we we actually have seen tracks like Mugello. Like we've, we've gone back to Imola, we've gone back to Turkey and throw in some of these other ones like uh, like we saw at Lucille and then also at uh, at Mugello. I, th I think it's great uh, that uh, that we've been able to, to do these things and uh, it's it's provided us with some pretty good racing. I mean, last year, I mean, we, we didn't think we were even going to get a season, but manage, somehow they managed to throw together an epic 17 race season. I mean, I say epic in the fact that anything under the early days of the pandemic, I think is a miracle. And it was wonderful to see. But uh, building on this year, I know that it's been fluid at times, uh, the, the, the calendar, but to get basically 95% of the, the, the calendar that we wanted to, even though some of the venues have changed here and there, I think is just a, a testament to, to the desire and the passion of everybody involved. And I think it's uh, great. But before we uh, start going, let's, let's Let's do what we always uh, forget to do, and let's just run down the, the, the top <laughs> 10 race classification at the 2021 Qatar Grand Prix. Lewis Hamilton winning 25 and a half seconds ahead of Max uh, Verstappen. That, that's a bit of an asterisk because Max pitting right at the end to uh, change uh, for soft tires. Then the, the big surprise of the day and uh, was maybe, well, we'll talk about this one definitely because uh, I thought it was a great result. That was Fernando Alonso. Coming home third for Alpine, Sergio Perez fourth for uh, Red Bull. You know, obviously big implications there in the Constructors' Championship. P5, Esteban Ocon on, in the second Alpine, which was an epic weekend uh, for them and uh, great to see Alpine having a, a good outing. Good uh, outing for Lance Stroll, who came home sixth in the uh, the Aston Martin. I think this is probably one of uh, Lance's best uh, races to date this season, which has been otherwise a year totally for the young Canadian to forget. Seventh and eighth, Carlos Sainz and Charles Leclerc for Ferrari. P9 was Lando Norris for McLaren. And then P10 was Sebastian Vettel in the second Aston Martin. So a double points finish for Aston Martin, which is a uh, good Ferrari, another good uh, solid finish uh, for them, even though in seventh and eighth, crucially separates them even more from uh, McLaren in the Constructors uh, Championship. We'll obviously talk about that as well. Now the top five in the Drivers' uh, Championship, you have Max Verstappen still leading the World Championship by 351.5 points, which is eight more than Lewis Hamilton, who was in second with 343.5. Valtteri Bottas, 203 points, which is only 13 points ahead of uh, Sergio Perez. And then you have Lando Norris with 153. Now, 
fifth is not sewn up in the, uh, the the driver's championship. Obviously, all eyes are on Lewis and Max, but actually everywhere there on down, there are plenty of stories uh, to look at. I mean, Perez is within striking distance of uh, Valtteri Bottas. Bottas not scoring a single point on Sunday afternoon. I mean, where, where did he come now? Um Oh, sorry. Of course, where did he come? He re- retired, so of course he didn't score any points. That's um, a P nothing. That's, that's a, P a P nothing. nothing that, by that's the a way. DNF. <laughs> we just get so used to like a, a Mercedes. I mean, when do Mercedes yeah. ever yeah. not finish a race? Hardly ever. Uh, but yeah, that was uh, obviously has big implications for the uh, the, the the drivers' uh, championship and the constructors' uh, championship. But also, I mean, Lando, Charles, Carlos Sainz. That's a pretty small margin separating those uh, three drivers. So I mean. Uh, uh, you know, keep an eye on the the battle between Sergio and um, and uh, and Valtteri. Gosh, I'm drawing a blank here. It must be late on a Sunday night. And then, of course, uh, Lando, 153 points. He's only a point ahead of Charles Leclerc. And then Carlos Sainz is only on 145 and a half points. So, I mean, there's only what seven and a half points between him and Lando. So that's uh, you know one we got to keep an eye on out over the next uh, two races we, as we wrap up the 2021 World Championship. Now, on the constructors' side, this is where it's getting interesting again, or I guess interesting still. Mercedes still on top, 546 and a half points, five points ahead now of Red Bull, who have 541 and a half. So obviously that uh, DNF from Valtteri Bottas today has, uh, was a big, big deal. Then you have in the constructors, in third is Ferrari 297 and a half, which is, uh, you know, 30, 40 points ahead uh, now of uh, McLaren, who have 258. You know... I think that this one's done. I think that uh, Ferrari's taken this. They've been more consistent over the past uh, several races compared to McLaren that have uh, stumbled uh, a little bit. Again, only bringing one car home in the points uh, today. Danny Ricardo was 12th. And then if you look uh, down, uh, fifth is Alpine. And I think that that battle between themselves and AlphaTauri, that's over and done with as well. Alpine has 137 points. AlphaTauri only has 112. And when you get down to these middle of the pack kind of teams, I mean, 40 points between between Ferrari and McLaren, and then uh, 25 between AlphaTauri and uh, Alpine, that's that's too much of a deficit to, to make up from one of these midfield teams with only a couple of races left to go. Yeah, absolutely. I feel uh, very good about that Ferrari prediction that I put out there during the summer. And of course, that prediction came immediately on the heels of Ferrari announcing that they had some power unit upgrades coming. So perhaps I shouldn't get too much credit for <laughs> that. But but I, you know, just looking at these these Grand Prix standings right now and the the race over race classifications, you're right. Historically, especially since the turbo hybrid era began, uh, Mercedes has really been the definition of reliable. But year to date now, Valtteri Bottas, and this isn't intended to be a criticism of him because obviously today the DNF, the tire failure, was more of a strategy piece, and the team was trying to get him to go long. But that is now his fourth retirement of the year, and of course, one of those retirements was because he got caught up with George Russell. Yeah. But Valtteri Bottas has himself now four retirements this year. And if you look at the cumulative retirements from Red Bull, well, Sergio's got one retirement from Hungary. And if you look at Max, obviously he has that really, really scary retirement from Baku when he himself had that tire failure, presumably due to the fact that it was over (laughs) inflated, but he also had the retirement um, in Great Britain. And uh, well, actually, if you look at this as well, Italy, but I think that was maybe a little bit more self-inflicted. But if you start to stack them up, you can start to see how the constructors 
is possibly starting to get away from Mercedes. And I know that if you look at the championship standings right now, Mercedes is still leading, but with two races left, as much as the momentum seems to be in Lewis's favor from a WDC perspective, he's Mm -hmm. still eight points down. But at the same time, I would say that Red Bull possibly has a little bit more momentum, despite the fact that they're five points behind in the Constructors Championship. So as much as we talk about, hey, there's a lot to fight for, there's a lot to fight for, there's an awful lot to fight for. The WDC is far from sewn up and neither is the constructors. And of course, the WDC is great from a bragging perspective, uh, but ultimately it's the constructors that's really valuable for these teams because that's what pays out the prize money for the team. So maybe a little bit less relevant for Red Bull and Mercedes simply because they're the big dogs from a financial perspective, but especially when you get down into third, fourth, fifth, sixth place, those, those differences make all the difference in the world. And as you said, Ferrari now sitting almost 40 points up on McLaren. I, I can't imagine a scenario where, where that changes or where that's reversed. It would have to be an absolute horror show for Ferrari over the last couple of races. Um, but then again, you still see a pretty tight battle here between Alpine and AlphaTauri Honda, 112 to 137. Maybe there's something there. Um, and of course, when you get to the back, Aston Martin is really in a bubble all of their own, but lots to race for over the course of the last couple of weeks. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's take a quick break here, Mark. When we come back, let's start breaking down the uh, the race itself and we'll do so in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, well, welcome back to the show, and we are breaking down the 2021 inaugural Qatar Grand Prix. Lewis Hamilton winning, closing the gap to Max Verstappen to just eight points with two races left to, uh, to go. So, the of course, the big thing on Sunday morning was the fact that uh, Max Verstappen and Valtteri Bottas both being given grid penalties for not lifting under the double-waved yellows uh, during qualifying in Q3 when uh, Pierre Gasly had a tire puncture right at the, the very end of the their, their second hot lap, right at the end of the session. And uh, yeah, it, it was funny too, because when you look at the way that the weekend started, um, Valtteri looked like he was flying, was uh, fastest in practice, had a pretty good uh, qualifying. I mean, they were all pretty close in qualifying, you know, relatively speaking. And then I, I can't help but think sometimes that these uh, things like, uh, you know, being penalized for not lifting under a yellow flag is somewhat of a self-inflicted uh <laughs> 
injury, if you want to call it that. Of course, it all happens uh, pretty quick, but especially I think that um, when it comes to like Max Verstappen, you have to be a little bit more aware of what's uh, going on. I mean, ultimately, Max had a cracking opening to the race. He did very, very well to make up uh, that deficit in a relatively short amount of time. Again, Lewis Hamilton, much like he had in uh, Brazil last week, had the superior car. Obviously, Lewis is in, in top form at the moment. Max having a little bit of damage uh, to the uh, the end plate on the front uh, on his front wing. He said after the race that it didn't really impact the top end speed too much. But again, it was interesting because, you know, he just wasn't able to match Lewis for, for, for pace for a second week running. And I think this is maybe one point that we want to pick up on now and discuss because this is one thing we were talking about over the weekend, you know, time zones and geographic distancing. You know, you really socially distanced yourself more than you really needed to, Mark. But <laughs> bad jokes aside, um, yeah, it was interesting that just the way that Lewis again just had pace in in buckets full compared to to, to Max Verstappen and uh, the, the the discussion was that uh, Ralph Schumacher uncle of Mick brother of Michael former Formula One driver was talking about that uh, these uh, replacements uh, to engine parts shouldn't really be done because there's a suspicion that they're going to fail or they're sort of on their last legs they shouldn't be made for performance upgrades but I was thinking okay well that's that's a fair comment and I couldn't help but wonder is he obviously not a Lewis fan because I mean he was really reacting, I, I think, in part to the fact that uh, Lewis changed his ice uh, before Brazil, because, I mean, they all do that. They all change out all the, the, the parts on these cars when they start to reach a certain mileage and they've gone past that, uh, you know, that that useful point in their life. So I think that's the whole point of changing these, the, these various components in the engine out. And because of that, that's why you are given the grid penalties to, to correspond with that. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's an interesting point, and I'm glad you brought this one up because I, I know you and I were talking about this via Slack. I'm joking. I don't even know what Slack is. We were talking about this via WhatsApp. I just hear other <laughs> podcasters talk about Slack all the time. We talked about it in the Slack. Maybe somebody could reach out and explain to me what Slack is. Well, but Slack right, is a chat tool. We actually, we, we use it at work uh, for when uh, we're oh. working in and out of the office. And it's, 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 it's very much like a WhatsApp. You have like a general like channel. You can break it up into different channels and have uh, private chats and things like that. So from a productivity to work thing, it's a quite uh, quite handy. Anyways, I digress. I'm I'm barely holding on with Reddit. I cannot take <laughs> on another communications app. But I think this is a really good conversation, right? And you don't need to go back far to see a much more generous formula or proposition for engine replacements. If you go back to the V8 era, and those engines were significantly less complex than the V6 turbo hybrids mm -hmm. of today, but the average or the annual engine allocation during that era was eight. You had eight that you could take before you started <laughs> taking penalties. But I think the wow. debate here really is that ultimately, if I'm a rich team, um, ultimately, I can just keep changing out power units at my discretion. Um, and really, the only way to discourage this is through performance penalties, so grid penalties. But I think what we're probably going to see with time, and again, I'm, I'm not mad at anybody here. I, I appreciate the strategy. And ultimately, if the grid penalty ultimately ends up being five and I'm Mercedes and it's within my budget to swap out that power unit and it makes sense, I'm going to have a fresh unit for the final run of the calendar. I'm going to do that. But I think the challenge here is one, if you want to better, if you want to better regulate and govern teams' ability to do this, you kind of already have in a couple of ways. One, 
when we weren't working under a cost cap era, the only detriment or the only deterrent to teams doing this, which is swapping out power units at their discretion simply for competitive reasons, the only deterrent to doing that would have been the grid penalties. The reality now is it's twofold in the sense that you've got grid penalties, which could always be strengthened. So if we believe that swapping out power units beyond the allocation that are permitted in the sporting regulations, if we want to, if we want to, I would say, create more deterrence there. We could simply do so with stricter grid penalties. But the other piece, and I think this is going to be a much more significant mechanism going forward, is simply going to be the cost cap. Ultimately, if I'm Mercedes, maybe I have the financial resources to do this, but I'll be very honest, a power unit is an incredibly, incredibly expensive piece of kit. And if you're swapping these out beyond the number that are allocated through the sporting regulations, you're going to hit that cost cap really, really quickly. So I don't, I'm not hating on Mercedes for doing it. I think it's very much the smart thing to do. And I think any other team would do it if they were given the opportunity. But I think ultimately, as the cost cap begins to become tighter and tighter over the next few campaigns, you're going to see probably less of this. Now, that said, it's also, I would say, even a question of entertainment and spectacle. Do we really want the last four or five or six races of a championship to be marked by the fact that you have all of these teams that burned through their allocation of power units over the first 16 or 17 races of the season, and now they're limping home on these power units that have definitely seen better days? Mm -hmm. So I think this is an interesting conversation. And I think the other piece too, and I'm just rambling at this point, is the allocation that are provided to teams today was really designed around that 1920 calendar mark that we expected going into the turbo hybrid era. If we're going to see a 25 race calendar, maybe there has to be allowances for this in the cost cap and allowances for this through the sporting regulation, because the four units, the five units that maybe we've hoped that these teams can get through a full campaign on simply isn't going to be sufficient. Because at the end of the day, I also don't want to see a campaign marked by four or five sloppy races at the end of the season. Yeah, you know, that that's a great point that uh, you bring up, and I mean that that's fine. I'm all for the you know the the opportunity should the uh, parts of the engine need to be replaced uh, because, like you say, they've seen better days. I'm perfectly fine with that, regardless if that's uh, Mick Schumacher at the bottom for Haas or Lewis Hamilton or Max Verstappen somewhere in one of the top teams, or if you're somewhere in the middle. But I mean, if uh, you do so, then you you take that penalty. I mean, there there obviously has to be uh, repercussions to that, and I, I'm perfectly uh, fine with that. But I think you raise a fascinating point in the, the the fact that these engines were only designed for a 19 to 20 race uh, season. Then all of a sudden, you know, we're going up to 22, 23, and uh, potentially uh, beyond. That, that there's got to be maybe some some space. You know, they they either give um, you know increase the allocation uh, that they're they're allowed to you know some somewhere in the rules either in the cost cap or you know s- some flexibility and uh, you know w- when you can ch- change it around because like yourself I don't only not want to see sloppy races at the end I mean I- I'm loving this battle between uh, Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen whoever wins at the end of the the, the season I mean it's just been fun to watch uh, from you know start to finish uh, so far I just don't want to see that or any e- even a race uh, decided on uh, the the fact that somebody had to to change something out because at the at the end of the day, then that kind of spoils uh, the, the the spectacle and what is uh, you know we as fans get really uh, jacked up uh, about. I mean, a, a race, okay, 
sure, you know, you have to change your 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 ICE or whatever at MGUH or an MGUK at a specific race. Okay, sure, that's uh, just a one-off. But in the end, you get down to like this uh, stretch run of uh, races. And then, uh, you know, you, you still got Max and Lewis with only eight points uh, between them. That would absolutely ruin the spectacle now and, and the battle that the, these guys have been fighting all season long because one of them has to change out something. But um, yeah, that's that's why I think that somewhere there's got to be a little bit of a give, you know. These uh, machines are stressed to the limits each and every time they go out to, to the track. And uh, there there's a lot of force that goes uh, through them all season long. So it's an interesting discussion nonetheless. Just as a frame of reference as well, before we move on to the, the, the next topic, it, it looks like according to the, the regulations for 2021, drivers can use three internal combustion engines, three turbochargers, three MGUHs, three MGUKs, um, and a variety of other units have certain allocations as well. So for instance, I think you get eight exhaust, but I think I might be a little bit off on mm-hmm. that one. And of course, you can use as many as you wish, but as soon as you cross that threshold, you get into the penalty territory. And I think for Mercedes and Red that's that's less relevant simply because their performance is so strong relative to the rest of the field. But maybe with that, and I don't know if we want to jump to a break, but I would love to talk about the performance of Lewis Hamilton, Max Verstappen this weekend. Okay, well, let's start this now. And then if we have to jump and pick it up on the other side of the grid or the the grid, (laughs) the the break, then so be it. I'm going to lead into it this way because I've got my thoughts on this, but I want to hear what you have to say. So Total Wolf, team principal of uh, Mercedes, says that the penalty that Lewis had to incur at uh, at Interglagos uh, last weekend brought out what he calls his superhero powers. Now, obviously, this is a team principal, uh, you know, pumping up the tires of his uh, number one driver and uh, obviously a multiple uh, world uh, champion. And I thought that uh, this was interesting. Now, you know, my take on it is obviously Lewis is a very, very very, very good driver. He's obviously a seven-time world champion. He's also driving for the best team and has arguably got the, the the best car, arguably the best car in the last couple of races. I wouldn't say so much that it brought out his superhero powers because I don't think that Lewis's talent or his capabilities of a driver have ever been brought into question. I think that maybe it was a bit of a reality check for Lewis, knowing, okay, we've only got three, four races to go in the season now. This is my opportunity here right now, right in front of me to become the GOAT. This is me, the the, the one opportunity that I know I have to uh, become this eight-time world champion, distinguish myself from the immortal Michael Schumacher, who uh, he's tied with with seven, who is like the benchmark that everybody's tried to measure up to for the past uh, 20 years. Lewis obviously equaling that uh, seventh world championship uh, last year. Now he has the opportunity to surpass Schumacher and become the outright undisputed all-time number one world champion with eight. And next year, let's face it, is a complete unknown. We have no idea if Mercedes is going to be one of the best, one of the worst, or somewhere in the middle. I mean, logic just dictates that they're still going to be one of the best. But I think that uh, that, that Lewis is just uh, extremely focused at the moment. Like I say, I think he's had the best car over the past uh, couple of races. The momentum swing has swung in the you know to him. I think a little bit more than Max in the last uh, couple of races. But to to go out as far as superhero powers, I'm not quite willing to go there. I mean, like I say, I think Lewis is in the zone right now. He's got the car underneath him and uh, he's, he's focused on what he needs to do and what the goal is. Yeah, make absolutely no mistake. Christian Horner 
Helmut Marko, Max Verstappen, they want this title more than anything. Sure, and I know that there have been some comments out of the Verstappen camp that, hey, I'm not super worried. If we win it, we win it. If we don't, we don't. They want it. But I love the point that you made about Lewis Hamilton. We, we can look at Max and we know his runway is 10 years, maybe more. But for, for Lewis, what is his runway at this point? We know there's two, but beyond that, who knows? Because he's 35 now. Does mm-hmm. he want to be driving? when he's 40 and certainly does he want to be driving at 40 if he doesn't have a hyper competitive car so I I like your point and I've been saying this since really the offseason that for Lewis this year was a bit of a reprieve because we should have been into the new chassis we should have been into the new formula this year and they pushed it back a year because of COVID and because of all the cost uncertainty and the economic uncertainty. So this year was kind of like a little bit of a reprieve for Lewis and the Mercedes team that, hey, that formula that's been working so well for us since 2014, we get an extra shot at it. And I think you make a great point that going into 2022, well, the power units are going to be frozen, but the rest of the car is going to be fundamentally different. We have no idea what that's going to translate into into, in terms of racing. So Lewis could have a competitive car next year. He maybe doesn't have a competitive car next year. Maybe the field is brought together and it's much, much tighter and much more competitive. So if I'm Lewis, I look at this, Hey, I'm 35 years old. I've only got two years left guaranteed on that deal. Although I'm sure Lewis could race as long as he wants to, but he's got Mm -hmm. two years left that we know of. He's 35 years old. He's got a car right now in the moment that he could win a championship with. So I think if the pressure is anywhere, it's probably a little bit more on Lewis, but what we saw this weekend, and I'd said last week that, hey, his performance in Brazil was a master, a master class. And friend of the show, Mr. Masakaris, responded and say it wasn't a master class. It was a masterpiece. And this weekend was just as dominating. It just wasn't as obvious because he didn't have the same sort of variables and curveballs thrown at him. He didn't get disqualified from qualifying and have to start at the back at a sprint qualifying session. He didn't have to carve the way through the field. But if you look at his performance in, in qualifying, like that Q3 performance, he was almost a half second up on Max Verstappen, which is incredible. And let's be very clear. Max had a phenomenal weekend. And you're right. That that yellow flag situation, totally self-inflicted, should have known better. It was the correct move. Good job to the FIA. Um, it was double, double yellows. Okay, no, no debate there. And I think we didn't hear a lot out of that camp because they acknowledged it. He made up all those places that he lost instantaneously, but I don't think it mattered. And I was listening to the Checkered Flag podcast a couple of days ago, and they were talking about the fact that ultimately Lewis just had to hold the lead going into the first corner. And this is before the the penalties were made public. So we were kind of talking it within the context of a of a front row one to Lewis Max start. But their point was ultimately Max or Lewis just has to hold that lead going into the first corner because given the pace and the performance of this car and based on what we saw in qualifying, as long as he can carry that lead into the first corner, he's going to win this race. And I think as soon as lap three this race, despite the facts that Max had had that great start, it was communicated to him right away that this isn't our race, mm-hmm. that you're not going to win this race. And all of a sudden we have this situation where we're going into Jetta. And by the way, Jetta looks like an absolutely bonkers video game track. I have no idea what to expect. <laughs> it looks like something somebody would render at home for the fun of it. That is going to be bonkers. And I have no idea what that's going to hold. And I'm super excited for it. I'm all in. But I think ultimately the pace that they're carrying right now, that fresh power unit and whatever is happening in Lewis's head in terms of that laser-like focus, I think you're right. He recognizes that this may be the shot. This may be the opportunity to score number eight, put some distance between me and Mick, be that 
Mick, Michael Schumacher, MSC, <laughs> put that distance between the two of us in the record books and be that undisputed greatest of all time. So Max was fantastic this weekend. You know what? The yellow flags were unfortunate. It was a self-inflicted wound. It was called correctly by the stewards. He was fantastic. He was never going to touch Lewis. And it looked very much like Max in Max in Mexico, where honestly, even if Max didn't take the lead in that first corner, I don't think there was any question that he was eventually going to secure the race lead and take that win. All of of a sudden, I feel the exact same way about Mercedes, which is, hey, if you can hold a clean lead for Lewis going into that first corner and get some clean air, it's over. Yeah, totally. I've got a couple of uh, responses uh, to that, and I'll uh, give it to you guys just in a moment as we take another break here. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay, welcome back to the podcast. It's always up to speed with Formula One. Mark and Mark here talking all about the 2021 Qatar Grand Prix. Uh, just before the break, we were just uh, talking about uh, the situation with uh, Max and Lewis, where they are you know, currently in the World Championship and just uh, how they're functioning, how they're driving, how their cars are at the moment. And just a couple of things, uh, you know, uh, about Lewis. Um, over the past uh, couple of races, I don't know where Mercedes has found all the pace and why this uh, W12, Lewis is especially, has got, you know, so, so good. Because at, at times this, uh, this uh, season, it... Um, I wouldn't say it was a, obviously it wasn't a horrible car, but it just it didn't look like it was completely dialed in. It looked like they were struggling with it at, uh, at certain times. I mean, uh, uh, Verstappen and Red Bull have taken advantage of that. I mean, Max has won, what, nine races? Lewis has won, what, seven now? So, I mean, they, they've won a handful, like a, a bucket load of uh, of races. I mean, they've won 80% of the races uh, between just the two of them that we've had uh, so far, more or less. Uh, so th- that is extremely interesting just to, to see, you know, how good that car is right now and i mean uh that car in the hands of a a guy that's a a very good driver and is very motivated is just a very very potent uh package and i just can't help uh, but wonder now that uh, that that max he's he's taken advantage where he can and uh obviously like, like you say i mean it was almost a foregone conclusion we all expected max to do well in mexico for example because uh you know that's just a a track over the past several years where red bull and that honda package together have just been unbeatable. Uh, Max did very well to hang on, and uh, despite uh, having nothing left on the tires to win at the the U.S. Grand Prix uh, before, and he's uh, you know go back over the other seven victories. I mean, they were all very well earned. Um, but now, I mean, the last uh, two races, Brazil was obviously a surprise that Lewis was as strong as he was. I mean, it uh, as as you say, I mean, just with all the adversity that he dealt with, really, I think. Was was overemphasized maybe by some people just like how good that win was. I mean, it was a good win. I mean, obviously coming from where he was uh, in, in the qualifying and then uh, being disqualified and then starting. Where did he start it again? Like a seventh or eighth or something like that. I mean, it, it was a strong start, but I mean, Max did very well. I mean, he just didn't have enough pace to go from seventh to first, but uh, to get to second and then have that uh, that fastest lap on top. I mean, that, that that's crucial. I mean, it's funny because I mean, when it comes down to it, at the end of the day. 
day, that single point, which I said at the beginning of the year was too much of a gimmicky thing that I thought was kind of corny and I didn't really like it, is uh, could be the thing that ultimately ends up uh, deciding the championship. And as time has gone on and that this title battle has, has gone on as long as it has and has been up in the air and open for debate for months and months and months, has really added uh, an extra flavor and uh, an extra twist to this championship that I think this is what the you know the creators had in mind when they devised this uh, th- this uh, this extra contest within a contest to give this extra point out for securing fastest lap of the race I mean if uh, Lewis was winning uh, the, the championship by by 50 points or Max was winning by 50 points and the, the championship was sewn up races ago this would be a, a mean nothing uh, extra point this is somebody just uh, maybe making up a little bit of space in the championship or oh look it's another pocket or point in the pocket for Lewis or Max or whoever it is, but uh, it's really worked uh, well uh, this year, especially. But yeah, like I say, I mean, uh, you know, Brazil maybe not as uh, was a surprise that Lewis was so strong this weekend. I don't think it was uh, a surprise. I guess we're, we're still expecting Mercedes will be strong going into the last couple of races, but the maybe to get back to the point I was trying to drive at uh, originally, but got sidetracked as usual, was that uh, maybe Max realizes this and is uh, that uh, that he knows that uh, okay, well, they surprised us in Brazil. We knew that we were going to be strong coming into Qatar, probably going to be just as strong going into Jeddah. And then we come down to Yas, which is maybe a bit of a, an unknown just to do the, uh, the, the reprofiling of the track. But again, a track where Mercedes has been pretty good. I just can't help but wonder, Max is like, I'll just do what I need to do. If I can win the race, I'm going to win the race. But maybe he's kind of thinking, you know, maybe it's going to come down to a one-on-one head-to-head battle with Lewis, winner takes all at Yas Marina in Abu Dhabi in a couple of weeks' time, and maybe that's what he's just focusing himself on. Maybe maybe that's what he thinks it's going to come down to, is uh, him and Lewis Hamilton, mano a mano, fighting it all all for the for the big prize at, uh, at Yas Marina. And it could come down to that. Yeah, and I certainly hope it does for all the reasons I've talked about before. I mean, the reality is the championship could still be decided at Jeddah. It certainly won't be decided in the favor of Lewis Hamilton, but I think for Lewis to have a legitimate shot at this championship, he's going to have to win out. To steal an NBA term, he's basically got to win out going through these next two races. I think Max can win the championship by only taking one of those two those two races. So as much as people are suggesting that all of the momentum is now with Mercedes and it's a foregone conclusion that Lewis is going to win title number eight, he's still eight points behind Max. Let's be very clear. There's two Grand Prix left and he's still eight, two, or eight points beyond behind Max. I don't anticipate Max having a mistake or making a mistake or committing a mistake over the next two Grand Prix. And I know that Jeddah is a new track and people aren't necessarily familiar with it and it's not rubbed in and it could be a little bit slippery. It's also going to be very, very fast. I just, I don't anticipate that either of these two drivers, they're the best in the world for a reason, even though Max obviously hasn't won a world championship, but I think we could argue and debate that he's probably one of the best drivers on the planet. I don't anticipate him making a mistake over the next two races. So for Lewis, it's a matter of you need to win these two races or you need to bank on Max making a mistake or getting caught up in traffic or getting collected by another car. And none of us want to see the championship decided like that. But it's going to be close, eight points right now, eight points. And like I said, I keep playing through the different scenarios in my head that what has to happen at Jeddah to guarantee that we see that final showdown at Yoss. 
what has to happen to ensure that we have a competitive final, what doesn't or what can't happen in Jeddah to result in this championship being terminated earlier than I think all of us want it to be. But I have to give credit to Mercedes because if you look at where they were at the beginning of the season and the fact that they were obviously significantly handicapped by the change to the aero design regulations this year based on the philosophy that they'd carried over largely unchanged from 2020, they were at a very significant disadvantage and they've they've chipped and chipped and chipped and chipped away and ultimately you have the possibly the best driver of all time driving one of your cars so you know you're going to get everything out of that that vehicle but we go into the final two races of the year obviously lewis is down eight but it's going to be very very close but having said all of that i don't think you and i have even acknowledged and sorry i'm just going over my notes here (laughs) we should probably jump to the fact that fernando alonso scored a podium. Yeah, I just couldn't help but wondering, is, did, did somebody at Alpine have to go and get a tattoo tonight, or was that only a Danny Ricardo Renault thing? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, joking aside, you know, it, it's funny, and I mean, uh, Fernando has been a, a really divisive uh, character in his uh, time in Formula One. He's one of those drivers, you either love him or you hate him. And it was funny, as we were watching the race uh, this morning, and uh, as, as uh, Fernando went up there, I mean, grinning broadly from ear to ear, my wife, could, you know, she said, you know, as, as much as I don't really like Fernando Alonso, she says, I've actually missed seeing his face up here. I mean, it was his first podium since Hungary in 2014. It's been seven years. I mean, it's been a very, very long time. And obviously, I mean, he had that uh, very, very, I mean, he went from uh, Ferrari, then he went to McLaren and the McLaren Honda era was obvious one that was uh, not productive to put it very politely (laughs) uh, before uh, leaving Formula One for a short period of time before coming back again uh, this year and I I think it was a great result not just for Fernando but uh, for the team as a whole I mean um, Esteban Ocon like we uh, said off the top of the program came home in uh, in P5 this I think was a a bit of a surprise for the weekend and I think that's what makes the um, like this midfield battle kind of interesting because the way that's uh, really kind of been uh, tossed up. I mean, uh, since Russia, I would say that Ferrari's been incredibly consistent since they upgraded their 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 power units. I mean, they haven't really been. I mean, they've obviously haven't really been uh, threatening for podiums or race wins consistently th- this year or since that time. But they've done what they've needed to do. I think uh, very quietly, and I think that's why that, that they've opened up that forty point lead over McLaren and the constructors. Whereas in that same time period, uh, that McLaren has stumbled. But then I think Alpine, again, it's it's this new guise of Renault, and they've they just have not been able to get it right since they came back into the sport after they took over Lotus a number of years ago, and they, they've shown flashes of, uh, of of potential. And this this is this weekend might be another one. It's just like every time that they, uh, you know, they, they do something that really looks promising that's like maybe this is where they finally get it together when they have a great result i mean let's not forget that esteban won in hungary this year which was a a phenomenal result for him personally and also for the for the team but it just uh when they whenever they show something like this it tends to be followed up by a long period of silence but you know i'm not going to take anything away from him i'm not going to take away anything uh, from uh, fernando i mean it was obvious he didn't have the pace to match the the the, the Macla- sorry the mercedes or the the the, the red bull and i think it was interesting too just how fast uh, sergio perez was at the end there i think he was taking chunks out of fernando's lead by a second and something per lap i think uh, at the end of the race once uh, the checkered flag was waved i think he was th- 
three, four seconds uh, behind. So obviously he needed a couple more laps to try and make that uh, that move, which obviously would have happened. However, fortunately, Fernando, unfortunately for for Checo, that uh, that that didn't work out. But it, it was a great result for him. And you know, I I must admit, I was happy to see it. I was too. And I I think I have very much the same feelings as your wife on this one. Not the biggest Fernando fan. I didn't same. like the way that the entire situation played out at McLaren back in 2007. I didn't like the fact that he left a championship caliber car with Renault to go there. I didn't like the fact that he immediately went back. I didn't like his... And I'm not saying he was guilty because of it, but his close association to two teams that were caught up in cheating scandals didn't look good. But I will <laughs> never debate that he was an immensely talented and demonstrably still an immensely talented driver. And it's it's interesting because after after yesterday's podium, I, I started going down that rabbit hole a little bit and I went back to 2014 and 2014, he's still driving for Ferrari. Now that was very much an adjustment year for that team because they were transitioning into the turbo hybrid era just as everybody else was. He finished sixth that year with a couple of podiums. But if you look back to 2012 and 2013, especially 2012, he was absolutely hyper competitive driving for Ferrari in those two years. He finished second in the championship in 2012, very, very, very close to to Sebastian Vettel. He finished second in the championship in 2013, not just as close, but I, I sense where his frustration came from now in 2015, that 2012, he's fighting for championships. 2013, he's fighting for championships. 2014, he's still competitive. And then all of a sudden in 2015, he's driving an absolute dog of a car that everything transpired to make mm -hmm. that relationship with Honda and McLaren terrible. And of course, he was right at the center of it because he was so vocal about everything that was going wrong. But all of that aside, I do agree that if not for the virtual safety car, he probably doesn't score the podium because yeah. Sergio is just taking chunks out of his time. But it was really great to see him on the podium. I tweeted this out a little bit earlier today as well. One of the things that's so remarkable about the time between podiums for for Fernando Alonso is the last time he stood on a podium, he had two driver's championships. Lewis Hamilton had one. Now, all of a sudden, <laughs> flash forward seven wow. years, Lewis has seven titles. And of course, Fernando Alonso still has two titles. And if you don't know, there has been, there continues to be a, a bitter rivalry between those two drivers. But that said, it was good to see. And I think it's good for the sport when you see different people scoring podiums and being able to celebrate. And both he and Max looked very happy. And one of the things that I, I was most impressed or I've been most impressed of uh, this season has been the relationship between Esteban Ocon and Fernando Alonso. I was very curious as to how this was going to play out. But mm -hmm. obviously, Fernando went to bat for Esteban in Hungary and today yep. Akon went to bat for for Fernando Alonso but it's been good to see an absolutely fighting like a lion right down to the very end and he scored his first podium and to your earlier point too about Alpine Obviously, last year they scored their first podium since returning in 2015. It hasn't been the return that I think they were probably hoping for at the corporate office of Renault slash Alpine. This year, two podiums to date, including a race victory. Are they happy with this campaign? I don't know, but maybe there's something here that they can build on going into next season. You know, uh, one thing I don't know if uh, anybody else uh, picked up on it, uh, but in the um, in the paddock there at the end of the race, Max uh, was obviously, uh, you know, quite happy, I think, uh, or 
you know, I, I think happy considering the, you know, the situation went over and gave uh, Fernando a somewhat uh, awkward looking bro hug. I don't think it was awkward, you know, because I, I think maybe Max is just a little socially awkward, but I did notice that there was a fairly good natured and smiles exchanged fist bump between him and, and Lewis. There, there wasn't a bro hug, but uh, they, they did actually do a little fist bump. So maybe there's been a little uh, warming of relationships there. I don't know if these guys are actually sending each other Christmas cards or, you know, birthday wishes, uh, you know, in the WhatsApp chat there, you know, but uh, anyway, I thought that was a bit of a funny moment. Anyways, uh, let's uh, take another break. And when we come back, let's talk about the tires. And guess what? Christian Horner has um, said some controversial things yet again. So we should maybe talk about those. Anyways, uh, let's take a quick break and we'll catch you guys on the flip side. So don't go away. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Welcome back to the program. So, Mark, what do you want to talk about uh, first? you want to talk about Horner or do you want to talk about uh, Pirelli? Because both of these stories, pun intended, are rather deflating to me. So <laughs> I don't know. You, 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 could, you, you could choose the course. You, the tires or Horner? Yeah, I, I'm happy to talk about the Horner story sure. a little bit. And I, I don't think we want to dwell on this too no. long. I think I think Horner and Marco, and this is a criticism, and I think it's a warranted criticism. I think that this year they've said some fairly outrageous things in the media in terms of accusations towards Mercedes and accusations towards Lewis Hamilton. And unfortunately, a certain segment of the Formula One support base, or maybe even people outside the F1 community have have taken certain liberties and accepted these as permissions to behave in in certain ways that have not been becoming to the sport and to the global community. And I've been very critical of both Christian and, of course, Helmut Marko with respect to some of those very inflammatory comments that they've made throughout the championship in terms of accusations towards competitors that are fully unfounded. But once again today, I think Christian Horner had made some comments that were very unbecoming of a team principal, and it was ultimately determined to be a breach of Article 12.2.1 F and K of the F1 International Sporting Code. And just to quote his comment here, I think it's just a rogue marshal that stuck a flag out. He's not been instructed to by the FIA. They've got to have control of their marshals. It's as simple as that because that's a crucial blow in this world championship for us. And my sense here is this is a pattern and I don't want to come across as too too much of a conspiracy theorist here, but I feel like throughout the championship and throughout the calendar this year, Christian's been laying these seeds and planting seeds along the journey that, hey, there's certain things that have ultimately contributed to us not being as competitive in the championship. Or, you know what, ultimately, if we don't win the championship, there's been these patterns of behaviors from the stewards and the marshals and the officials that have contributed to us not winning the championship. And that Mercedes have been doing these curious, mysterious things that have gained significant performance from the car. But I feel like he's almost been planting seeds throughout this journey so that in the event that maybe they don't win a championship, he can point to these pattern mm. of mysterious things 
things and say, hey, well, that's why we didn't win the championship and ultimately undermine the credibility of the championship. And I didn't like this, but I was very happy to see today that some comments that he said towards the FIA regarding the marshals at the circuit were, were ultimately responded to. And I thought it was nice to see him apologize because he was very sheepish coming out of that session with the stewards and the race organizers. And it clearly had his race or has hands slapped. But ultimately in this case, his comments were anti-marshal, anti-FIA, because ultimately he had the yellow flags impacted Max and his ability ability to have a better start during the Grand Prix. But I think it's also fair to to imply here that the marshals weren't at fault. The marshals were doing exactly as they're instructed to do. But it's also important to understand as well that if you're going to challenge the stewards and you're going to challenge the marshals consistently, you're ultimately challenging and undermining the credibility of the championship itself. So I'm glad he was put on blast a little bit for this one. But I think it's probably also worth calling out for everybody here that as much as you and I debate the quality of the stewardship and the officiating in the sport, which I think is a valid criticism, and mm-hmm. I think the FIA and Liberty need to do more to have a better a better academy to create stewards. I think we need to have the same full-time stewards officiating every single race. But I think it's also worth calling out that the marshals, by and large, are volunteers. They're local volunteers from the cities where these races are being held. And as much as I think the the marshals do a great job, and I think the FIA does a great job getting them ready, for the the sake and for the sanctity of the championship going forward, not only do I think we need to do better when it comes to the stewards and the officiating of the sport, it's a little bit shocking that we still rely on volunteer marshals Mm -hmm. to bring these races to life. But ultimately, he was disciplined appropriately. So I I was glad to see that he looked a little bit sheepish. I'm glad to hear that he apologized, but I think he probably should have been reprimanded a little bit more throughout the journey of this championship for some of the things that he said, simply because they were unnecessarily inflammatory and they activate a base of supporters that don't really have a place in the world of formula one. Yeah. I I wouldn't go as far to maybe, uh, you know, put Christian in the same category as where I'm going to go with this, but it, it sort of reminds me, we've seen it in North America here before we have uh, one team in the playoffs and things aren't going their way and the head coach will say well the refs don't want us to win the league doesn't want us to win you know and you can tell that their team isn't playing well but in this case that 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 isn't really valid because I mean Max has been driving great the car has been good the engine's been good and uh, you know so I mean it's if it's like a if it's attempt at sort of deflecting sort of some things that they haven't been doing right themselves, I mean, that's just not, it just doesn't seem appropriate because that's not what's uh, been going on. But like you say, maybe he's kind of sowing some de- you know seeds uh, for, for whatever reason. But another point that I think is uh, interesting, like you say, I mean, about the volunteer marshals is that, okay, so maybe you still have to like rely on local help. But at, at this point, is there not some way that the FIA and Formula One can get these people, I mean, obviously they're accredited to, to be there, but certified that there is some sort yes, of like program yes. that they need to go through, that they're, they're actually credentialed as a, you know, whatever that this designation is as a, as a race marshal in, in whatever uh, category it is or however it works that, uh, yeah, agree. you know, even if they're still a volunteer or, you know, they get, uh, you know, a small amount of pay for it, but there is some sort of professional backing that they've done, uh, some sort awesome of accreditation, point. some sort of, um, some sort of 
you know, study or whatever it is that they've had to meet a certain certain standard because then at least these, you know, there there wouldn't be any room. And I, I mean, I don't really think that the 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 marshal was really at fault. I mean, it was pretty obvious that Gasly was having a problem and he was touring around. I mean, the yellows needed to be waved. I mean, he did exactly it, what he's supposed it, to exactly. do. Exactly. So I mean, but I think that if you had uh, that these marshals were accredited or, or credentialed properly, then it just sort of takes that uh, away from you know that that opportunity for 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 credit. So, moving along, let's talk about uh, the Pirelli issue on the tires uh, this weekend. Um, obviously, one of the uh, the, the big ones um, again compared to uh, uh, Baku earlier this year, and uh, it, it was interesting. Apparently, uh, Pirelli was say, is telling the teams on Saturday, you know, it's not going to work if you try to do a one stop strategy. A bunch of them uh, tried to, to do it, and obviously, it didn't work out. But I think the scary element in all of this is that the driver said that they didn't have any indication that anything was going wrong until it actually happened. I mean, Lando needed confirmation from the uh, McLaren pits that something was actually going on. And that's, uh, I think, what uh, makes it a little bit uh, problematic. And I mean, this is a bit of a no-win situation for Pirelli. I mean, they they told the teams that the you know one stopper wasn't going to work, and then here they are, just uh, you know, literally weeks ago, being told, okay, we'll come up with some tire compounds. We're going to this track where we've never raced at before that we have no data on. So you know, give us some tire compounds. I mean, ultimately it went with the C three, four, and fives, which is the hardest tire compounds in the Pirelli range. And still, it was an issue. But I think what was what was very interesting to me was the fact that I think that all the guys that had punctures, like Nikki, like uh, like Lando, like Valtteri, I think they all had the hard tires on at that uh, that point, which are supposed to be the harder wearing, longer lasting tires. So uh, you know, I, I might be mistaken in who was running what uh, tire co- to- compounds. Pardon me, but I think they were all on the hards at the time. So just uh, just interesting, and again, very much uh, like we did see at uh, Baku, was the fact that uh, the, the the tire failures were pretty much instantaneous. Absolutely. I think Pirelli and Formula One did the right thing. To your point, they brought the three hardest compounds. And when you're uncertain of the conditions and the tire load that the tires are going to experience, that's probably the smart thing to do. Sure. Uh, But interestingly, Pirelli F1 boss Mario Isola has explained, and I'm going to quote here, this is a quote to uh, Sky uh, Sky News. Uh, the front left was affected because it is the most stressed tire. But I don't want to say that this was caused by excessive energy or something like that. He told Sky Sports F1. First elements that I can share with you is this: all the tires were quite worn, close to 100%. So what he's saying here is that the tires that did have failures were basically at their limit already. So this could have been avoided if you brought them in a little bit earlier. He says, and he continues, we have cuts on the tires that we have to understand if they were caused before loss of pressure or after the loss of pressure. We're waiting for telemetry data from the teams. He added, this is really important element to understand that the loss of pressure was sudden. And what was the time for that? All of the drivers were able to go back to the pits. So they lost pressure, but in a time that was enough to control the car and to get back into the pits, we're seeing a lot of impacts at high speed on the curbs here. And finally, he says, it's not a secret that many teams had also had damage to chassis, to the floor, to the wings. And when a tire is worn, it's less protected from curbs, big impacts, high energy impacts. Then it can happen that they start losing pressure and you can either have to change the tire or or you get a flat 
tire. So a little bit of interesting uh, analysis there. I think it's good that Pirelli came out and addressed some of the punctures, but I'm also not surprised for all the reasons that we talked about. We've never had a chance or an opportunity to run Formula One cars at this track. We didn't know what to expect from the curbs. We knew it was going to be a high-low track simply because they're almost all medium and high-speed corners, which means that those tires are carrying a ton of load as they transition from corner to corner. Uh, I just, I'm happy that Pirelli came out and addressed this. And if we do go back to LaSalle in 2023, because the new Cornish track isn't ready, I'm sure they'll make adjustments accordingly and revisit the specification of the tires that they do bring. Yeah, you know, it is interesting too. I mean, uh, number one, I think it was a tough ask uh, for Pirelli. I mean, literally they they had a very Absolutely. short uh, warning to, to, to get the tires together. But I mean, you know, be conservative, go with it. If you're not sure, then take your hard, hardest compounds available and use those. But then on the, on the flip side, I mean, you know, if they make recommendations to the teams and the teams don't follow them, then, you know, they're, they're kind of caught in this, uh, you know, this, this, this catch 22. I mean, they, they've done what they've, you know, they, they've, they've tried to warn people what they shouldn't be doing, what, uh, what, what the expected tire lives are going to be. And that, uh, that information is, uh, kind of disregarded uh, to a, a certain extent. So it, it's, it's difficult, but I mean, obviously at the end of the day, safety has to be paramount. So somebody has some uh, questions uh, to answer. Either the teams have to take the, uh, the the responsibility that yes, we ran the tires beyond the recommended uh, uh, win- or lap uh, windows and uh, they exceeded their useful and safe uh, life. And uh, we have to accept that or Pirelli have to uh, accept the responsibility that the, the, the tires themselves uh, were at fault and, uh, and rectify it so we don't uh, see it again because, uh, you know, it could always... Uh, lead to somewhat uh, unfortunate uh, circumstances, which uh, nobody wants to see. Um, just a, a quick comment here in the live chat. Rocky does it all. Is just uh, remarking to uh, what we were just talking about, the marshals. And uh, he said, my dad was a marshal. He made mistakes too. It's a human element. So, you know, it's, it's, it's true. I mean, that, 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 that's always going to be a factor in any sport and especially it's more pronounced. I think the faster the sport and whenever things are, are more at stake, you know, uh, especially in the championship we're seeing right now, maybe he doesn't get a comment if it's race one or two of the season or something like that. But anytime that you have a, an official, I mean, that that's human. Obviously there's the, the opportunity for, you know, poor judgment or just making a bad call. I mean, it, it can happen. And I mean, most of the time you, we're not having these conversations because these people are doing the right thing, making the right calls all the time. And just to, to reiterate, we don't think that that marshal at, uh, at Qatar did actually anything wrong. In fact, we, we think he did the right thing. Anyways, a uh, great comment. Um, let's take one final quick break, Mark. I got a couple of emails I want to get to. So let's uh, do that. And when we come back, we'll uh, dive into the mailbag. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Okay, welcome back to the show. Uh, we got a, a bunch of uh, emails here. A couple of them uh, are a little bit uh, old. We got one here from Stephen Becker and uh, Richard LeBlanc. Richard, uh, he he labeled his one. I love it. Rant alert. And uh, basically, we've addressed most of the things in Richard's uh, email. Um, basically, um, he had uh, in full disclosure, he's rooting for Max and Red Bull uh, for for this season. And uh, basically, what uh, what what it came down to was that uh, he took uh, exception to a lot of the uh, the, the glowing reviews um, that uh, were given out after Lewis's 
his win at uh, at Sao Paulo uh, because he he feels that uh, that Lewis obviously the best driver and the best car was uh, you know I think he recognized uh, the the adversity that Lewis uh, you know uh, may or faced and I hope I'm not putting words into his mouth but uh, I think that uh, you know that's a very very valid uh, and a, and a fair point of view I mean uh, the the words that he uses um, you know the the uh, the absolutely dominant W12 no uh, amount of talent in the world could have done or, or could have done what Lewis did. I think it's interesting too because I was on the TSN racing pod with uh, our friend Tim Haraney earlier this evening and he made an interesting flex, comment. Flex, flex, I'm going to flex. flex on that uh, with <laughs> uh, but it's, it's funny because uh, Tim was saying that you know when he talks to the other drivers that I think they all you know might uh, from what I understood from Tim is they all obviously respect Lewis for what he is or who he is and what he's done um, but I think it's uh, what he said is that they just see him as another driver that's obviously been very successful but has also had a very very good car underneath him for 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 many many years and they all think that he's uh, beatable under the right uh, circumstances unfortunately there are only two Mercedes cars and Lewis has one of them and if uh, you get a situation like uh, you have like in Brazil where the car was just that good and the driver was also in top form it is just uh, an unbeatable package uh, that uh, not even Max on his best uh, at that day uh, could uh, could fend him off so uh, thank you for that uh, email uh, Richard I hope I didn't uh, quote you out of context there now the next one is from uh, Justin Nelson checking in from Fargo North uh, Dakota so he's a uh, new to Formula One and uh, so basically the, the first half of his uh, email is referencing the Silverstone accident and the fact that uh, that Max went to hospital afterwards was checked out for the whole concussion uh, protocol um, and then Jos Verstappen Max's dad topped uh, or asked uh, Total Wolf to stop calling because they didn't want to pick up obviously you know it was a heat of the moment uh, kind of thing and then um, so he he cuts to the chase and uh, this is I'll just read uh, Justin's email if this were a, a world where Max one day is in the prime of his career goes to Mercedes do you think he is more or less likely to do that if Mercedes snags the world championship from him this year seeing the competitor that Max is makes me think he would be less likely to make that move as it would drive a greater wedge between them in which case is it better for Mercedes future to lose this year's world championship okay would love to hear your thoughts thank you Justin um so that's uh, interesting I mean for for um this one not just for for Justin but uh, maybe for uh, other people that are new to Formula One this year let's not forget going back about five or six years Max was with uh with Toro Rosso which was you know what uh, Alpha Terry used to be called was actually before he went to Red Bull got promoted somewhat uh, unexpectedly was offered a reserve driver role by Total Wolf at uh, Mercedes now Max and his uh you know and and his team team and by team i mean his dad and his advisors you know team max not just uh, red bull uh, advised him to stick with red bull and obviously that paid off i mean kvyat uh, did very kvyat things and uh, was demoted from red bull after the other uh, the russian grand prix max goes uh, and gets promoted to red bull wins his very first race at spain in 2016 obviously that was helped uh, due to the fact that uh, nico rosberg and lewis hamilton crashed at turn three i mean they would have run away with that uh, race i mean they were just uh they were just in a different league. The cars were so good that year. Um, anyways, Max wins his, his, his first race and the rest is a history. I mean, as for him going to Mercedes in the future, sure, why not? It could happen. I mean, there, there is a connection there. I mean, they, they made the offer to him once, but the question is when and how could that happen? That's... I mean, obviously, at this point in time, it seems very counterintuitive. I mean, it doesn't seem like a, a logical thing to happen, but... 
Formula One's all about winning, right? And um, it, it all comes down, I think, to money and opportunity. I mean, uh, is is the offer right? Should they ever give uh, make another offer to Max Verstappen, not just in, in terms of you know money, but length of contract and whether or not they're still competitive at that time? But sure, I mean, I, I would never say... Uh, I, I would never count anything out in, in Formula One, unless you're you're talking about Fernando Alonso who's basically burnt every bridge in Formula One he's ever had, except maybe with Alpine <laughs> slash Renault. So there, there, there's that. Oh, man. Yeah, I think this is a really good point. And it reminds me of something that Tim Haraney said to me once before, which is, and I can't remember what the context of this was. Maybe it was the context that Latifi chose, quote unquote, to go to an underperformer like Williams. And Lance Stroll chose to go to an underperformer like Williams. But he made a point once before, which was, if you get offered a seat in Formula One, you take it. Without hesitation, you do not wait around. You do not pass on it for a better deal. You take it. And I think if you flash back to 2014, 2015, you make a really great point that there was high speculation at that point that Max was going to end up with the Mercedes team at some point. But of course, Mercedes didn't have anywhere to stash him and Red Bull did, and they could offer him a ride in Formula One. And it wasn't obviously with the premier class team, but to have a ride in Formula One is everything. And that was absolutely the right thing. Do I think there's an opportunity for him to perhaps partner up with Mercedes in the future? Sure. I mean, anything's possible, ultimately. I think probably less of a likelihood now, simply because hopefully we'll see increased parity within the field, and perhaps there's going to be more than one team that could be attractive to Max Verstappen. But ultimately, if he wins the championship this year, I think that will really help solidify a kind of a long-term runway with that team, simply because I think it would make sense for him to stay there. But I absolutely wouldn't... Wouldn't be surprised if he maybe four or five years from now is having having a cup of coffee with Toto and the leadership team at at uh, Mercedes because that's just the smart thing to do, right? And I remember years and years and years ago, somebody talked to me about career opportunities, and he made this point that. You might not need to buy a new coat, but there's absolutely no harm in going out to the department store and trying on a couple because you don't necessarily know what's out there and you don't know what a great fit might be until you've tried on a few things. So I think when the opportunity comes, it it makes total sense. And I think in the NBA and in the NFL and in Major League Baseball and the NHL, that's why I think sometimes players really do look forward to free agency. They might be really happy with their current situation, but I think they really appreciate having the opportunity to go out and explore. And of course, in those leagues with collective bargaining agreements, you can't even have those conversations until your contract's over. In Formula One, you can have those contracts or you can have those conversations whenever you want, of course. But I think you're right that maybe it's something that we're going to see in the future. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, the, thank you for that, uh, Justin. Now let's go back to, to Steve um, Steve in Texas. And his email is, first off, love the show and think y'all do a great job of recapping, giving you your insight. Thank I'm you. I'm semi-new to the show, so apologies if the ser- scenarios come up before. I was wondering if the drivers swap cars, Max to Mercedes and Lewis to Red Bull, for this year only, how do you think the championship battle would be playing out? Personally, I think that Max would be pulling away much more than he is now. The Mercedes car just to, seems to be a more complete car. Volteri and Lewis are capable of getting pole every weekend, whereas Sergio's only really had one, two shots this year. I'll hang up and listen. Thanks, Steve from Texas. Well, thanks for the email, Steve. I think this is a, an interesting one. It kind of uh, is a nice segue, kind of an interesting switch from the, the, the previous email. 
And the W12 obviously has gotten a lot better over the course of the year. There, there's no doubt at the beginning of the year they they struggled with that uh, that high rake aero model that they uh, that they have on this car. But that uh, that obviously is not such a, a handicap now compared to it was way back in March when we went to Bahrain. And uh, they, they've obviously been able to work past it compared to the uh, the other team that's uh, employing that model in Aston Martin. So I, I think that uh, that. that the Mercedes as it is now is is basically back to where it's been for all these years, undisputably the best car in the field. It's the fastest car, the best handling car. It's, you know, the complete package again. And I think this goes back to the the, the point that uh, listener uh, Richard LeBlanc was making about that. Yeah, Lewis, uh, yeah, had adversity, but let's not forget he had the best car underneath him. So yeah, I mean, despite struggling earlier in the year, they, they figured it out and they've been able to get this car dialed in uh, properly. So so it, it is a you know an interesting uh, scenario. I mean, Sergio, yeah, he's had his opportunities, and of course, let's not forget he's had to come in and learn this car that uh, he has no experience with. You know, after spending all these years with Force India slash uh, Racing Point, so th- that's always a big ask. I mean, when when you switch uh, you know teams and and move to another car that that, uh, that that's obviously brand new to you. I mean, look at the the, the issues that Danny Ricardo's had at uh, McLaren this year. So that's another one to watch. For, for next year as well. Whereas I think that Sergio more, I, I think he's figured it out over the long term. I mean, he's been looked a lot better over the last, say the last third of the season compared to the first third of the season. And then in the middle third of the season was a little bit, kind of a little bit back and forth uh, from from time to time. But yeah, it w- would be interesting too. I mean, if you take away some of these variables of uh, not being familiar with the car and you could put Max and Lewis into each other's car and just, you know, in the scenario that they're immediately familiar with them and they could uh, and do things with them. That that's a, a great question. I think that uh, just due to the fact that um, I, I think it would have been the same, but in reverse, just to, to the fact that uh, the Mercedes struggled earlier in the year, whereas Red Bull was more consistent. That uh, perhaps Lewis would be slightly ahead in the championship, and Max would be slightly behind. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think I agree with you. I I would argue though that the prevailing sense for most of the season was that. The Mercedes car was good, but it was far from perfect. And there were some performance gaps there that I don't think most of us expected them to overcome. It's really, and we saw some flashes. Obviously, Coda was was very, very close. And we saw a couple of problematic races for Red Bull. But if somebody came to me on September 1st or October 1st and said, hey, look, you need to put money on a team. I'm putting that money on Max. I'm putting that money on Red Bull without without any hesitation. Yeah, totally agree. The fact that the championship has become so tight is is a bit of a, a shock to me. And and I think obviously from a Red Bull perspective, their perspective is, hey, let's start flailing a little bit rather than trying to be analytical and just understand that, hey, maybe Mercedes really has made some incremental improvements to the car over the course of the campaign. But all of my money would have been 30 days ago, 60 days ago, 90 days ago would have been on the Red Bull. They seemed unstoppable and Max just seemed to be in an absolutely different class. But maybe we maybe we wrote off Mercedes too quickly just in the sense that, hey, we didn't give them the credit they deserve. They ran off seven straight championships for a reason. And that's simply because they have the best people and the best engine factory and the best engineers and the best mechanics. And 
arguably the best driver of all time, suiting up and driving your car. And that's valuable because we knew coming into the season that that car was deficient from an aero perspective. And we probably didn't credit Lewis enough for being able to provide really tangible, meaningful feedback back to the team to be able to modify and improve that car to get it into a state where it's going to be hyper competitive. But I don't, I don't necessarily, and I know that's not what the listener is saying. And by the way, thank you so much to everybody for your emails. It makes me so much to all of us. But like I said, I think the prevailing sense through the first six or seven months of this campaign was it was Red Bull's championship to lose. And I don't think there was ever a point this year where people were arguing the other. I think it was always, it's going to be an uphill battle for Mercedes and maybe they're going to have to have a little bit of luck, but all of a sudden they seem to have put everything together, at least in the sense that uh, Lewis's car isn't that whole new whole new world of performance. Oh yeah, they they've really f- managed to get that car figured out, especially over the last uh, several races. Finally, friend of the the show JJ in H Town has to ask: What are the two big vertical antennas sticking out of the nose of the Ferrari cars? What do they do? I see some on the other cars, but they don't seem nearly as noticeable. Is there a reason that they're so large on the Ferraris? Thanks, JJ from Houston. Mark, you want to take this one first? Uh, nope, I'm desperately Googling this in the background <laughs> because you didn't give me any heads up. I'm also equally as interested in what those aerials are. I can assure you that they're probably not for picking up FM radio stations. They're probably not for picking up AM radio stations, even if you live in Dallas or some of the big markets that have really great sports radio stations. But uh, I'm going to Google this real quickly because I want to make sure we have the correct answer for our lovely listener. Well, you know, uh, it, you know. first of all, you have to remember addressing the second part the question first is why are they so uh, noticeable and why are they uh, bigger on the Ferrari than some of the other cars is you have to remember that everything that goes into a Formula One car what is uh, you know a similar part on a Mercedes is uh, different than a similar part on a Ferrari is everything is a bespoke part it is uh, completely designed it's completely unique to that team and to those two cars and uh, I mean there are some of these uh, common parts that all obviously have to fit within the uh, the, the, the design parameters but some things uh, obviously are a little bit uh, different. And uh, these ones, uh, you know, these antenna, you know, I, I believe that they are for measuring the, uh, like the, for, for uh, speed calculations and things like that, uh, you know, measuring the airspeed around the cars. I mean, they look very much like a pitot tube that uh, you would see on an aircraft. So, you know, I probably should have done my research on this one uh, beforehand too, but uh, hey, that's part of the problem when uh, when I open the email and just uh, let my mouth run away with me. So there you go. <laughs> no, I mean, this is a great question. And, and I think you more or less and nailed it. So it's the specific use for the antennas at the front of the cars. And I, so what I am very curious about and what I was actually trying to Google in the background was that comment about the Ferrari ones being distinct from the other cars. My understanding, and again, we, we're not 100% subject matter experts, and I will come back with a pretty solid explanation last or next week, but I was under the understanding that the antennas were FIA regulated, meaning that these are the one of the parts that you don't get to develop internally, that they're a common part shared across all of the cars, mm-hmm. but specifically as you indicated, um, they're data management tools. So they function as transponders to allow the timekeepers to record every lap and sector that the cars have. But that said, my understanding is that they've always been identical parts across all of the teams because they serve a single function and that they're not intended to provide any type of arrow functionality. But I'm going to double check that because I think this is a really good question. So um, bear with us. And when we come back on Thursday, we'll talk a little bit more about the antennas and the transponders on the cars.
Okay, cool. Well, one thing I do think is interesting too is like uh, now that uh, you you do have like the uh, the F one um, uh, the F one TV app has like the, the the live timing and the data stream that you can watch like live. I think it's fascinating just the way that the timing is set up. I mean that the gaps in the uh, between the cars uh, the, the the time difference is changing instantaneously all the time, which I think is you know phenomenal. I mean back in the old days, I mean it was literally you know just uh, you get the uh, like the segment times after you know S one S two s3 whatever i mean now it's literally you're watching that gap close or or grow in real time i think that's really really cool to way that uh, that they that they can uh, measure and uh, and uh, you get that data flowing around uh, from from the cars back to the pits and then you know ultimately to uh, to us all at home which i think is uh, really really cool before we sign off, I just wanted to call out a couple of other points because I'm just looking through my notes here and a couple of other things I want to touch on really quickly, sure. I promise. One was I've been campaigning and I know that you're very much in agreement that in the world of Formula One in 2021, 2022, when there's a great scarcity of teams, we have only 10 teams. I'm not a fan of the idea that one company can own two teams for all the reasons that we talked about before. Mm -hmm. It's a competitive disadvantage and it throws into the... It throws into question the, the quality of the championship. And, and I know that Christian Horner isn't specifically able to call in team orders to Alpha Tauri, but we know that conversations in the panic can also lead and culminate in team orders that aren't necessarily so obvious and so direct. But I did notice today, and this was shared on Reddit as well, that video clearly shows that Gasly intentionally kept his DRS closed to let Max pass and only activated his DRS after Max had passed him, which to me just reinforces the fact that Max shouldn't have three teammates out there with him at any given time. He should have one. And I'm all for forcing teams to sell uh, other teams. Like th this, this shouldn't be allowed. And, and hopefully we get to a place in the world where you can allow another hungry, hungry, hungry owner to enter the sport and do everything they can to be competitive. Mm -hmm. And I get that Red Bull gets all sorts of credit because it's their driver academy. Like you can build a driver academy in Formula 2 and Formula 3 in Indy. There's all sorts of other things that you can do. I just, I don't like the fact that 20% of the cars on the grid are effectively the same team. The other thing I noticed this weekend, and this I saw on Reddit as well, is Red Bull and Mercedes, their mechanics are no longer pulling in the, pneum the pneumatic pipes, the hoses for the other teams or for their principal rival during the pit. So it makes it a little bit more challenging for their competitors to get in and out. Um, and then just two other really quick things here as well. And I think this is fantastic. Max having scored a podium today now has 58, one more than former world champion Nico Rosberg. So incredible. Wow. Max has now got 40 or sorry, 58 podiums in his career. And I know you touched on this one a little bit earlier. Lance, best performance of the season, finishes P6. Watching him in the post-race interview with Julian Palmer, it was a Lance I haven't seen in many, many years. And I think one of the frustrations that I've had with him this year is not only his performance, but just his, his muted personality. He seemed to be really happy and excited and stimulated in a way that I haven't seen him this year. But it is interesting because they specifically asked him about the tires, because if you remember, he had that really awful tire blowout in Baku earlier this year. And I think a lot of us watching for home were legitimately worried for his safety after his car came to a complete halt. But they asked him like, hey, you know what, what were you feeling? And he was saying that that front left tire, he said, felt an awful lot like his front left tire in Baku. And mm. he was very, very relieved that he he was able to bring that car home in wow. one piece. 
That's interesting. Uh, but just kind of going back to uh, what, you know the the, the whole uh, AlphaTauri Red Bull thing there, you know, the, it's funny. I mean, the, the, I think they even mentioned that on Sky TV that uh, that uh, Gasly didn't open his DRS until Max had uh, passed. I mean, so how, so how does that go down? Is it just uh, obviously um, you know expected of them? Is Christian Horner texting France tossed from his burner phone on the pit wall? Is he sending a paper airplane <laughs> over that, or is it just, is he just sitting there scowling at him? You know, from from his uh, seat on the pit wall at Red Bull and scowling down at France sitting on the uh, the pit wall at AlphaTauri. I mean, uh, yeah, again, it's just uh, the, the whole transparency and integrity uh, point of view. So it uh, I know what you mean, but it would be hard, I think, to try and remove AlphaTauri from Red Bull. And I'm sure that even if they had something in there that uh, Red Bull insist, well, we've been doing this for years. Surely we should be uh, grandfathered in at, uh, at this point. Anyways, my friend, it looks lovely and warm and sunny where you are. Monday morning in Dubai, Sunday night here in, or what's left of it, uh, here in Vancouver, Canada. And, uh, well, enjoy your day, Mark. Thank you for taking time to to join us. Thank you for all of you guys that uh, joined in on the live stream. Javier, Rocky, and uh, I think a couple of others have just jumped in. So I uh, appreciate all the comments in the live chat. Thank you guys for the emails, for the tweets. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed the weekend as much as uh, we did. That is it for now. If you want to get in touch, uh, by all means, please do so. You can send us a tweet at ScuderiaF1Pod, or you can send us an email at Scuderia f1pod at uh, gmail.com it's kind of interesting now i've been used to these race weekends week in week out we now get a breather next weekend before we head over to saudi to Jeddah in a couple of weeks time for the inaugural saudi grand prix looking forward to the weekend off but before that there is some work to do we will be back on thursday night slash friday morning so until then have a great week thank you for listening and we'll talk to you again soon on behalf of myself and mr mark hamilton take care and bye for now